You're on Community Radio, 2XX 98.3 FM. You're with Scotty. You're listening to Behind the Lines. And today we have an interview with the Refugee Action Collective and uh, and a bunch of special guests um, amongst them. We welcome Meg Clark from the RAC, Michelle Dunbreen from the RAC and the UC Media Research Centre. We have Jane and Toby from the Save the Children Fund. Well, who used to work for the Save the Children Fund. Was it in Nauru? Yep. Yeah, yep. And Sophie Singh from the Refugee Action Committee, which is actually what that rack word I've been using stands for. The whole story about refugees is is it's what what the whole thing runs on, really. And and the story that we're getting from the politicians. Well, what what's that story? Um, I guess Michelle, you're you're in the in the media studies field. What what have you been seeing the uh, the media tell us and the politicians about refugees? Well, well, it's all interlinked, really. You know, the politicians make statements, the media the report them, and the discourse filters down, the words used filter down into the general community. So, um, yeah, you know, just simple things like, you know, politicians using, calling refugees illegals when they're actually not illegal. It's not illegal to seek asylum, regardless of what way you arrive in the country. So demonising boat people when most refugees actually arrive in the country by airplane. So this um, language filters down into the community and people, yeah, boat people, people who arrive by boat are demonised as entering the country illegally, um, queue jumping when there is no queue for them to jump, um, issues like that. You know, the media, like some of the media does a really good job on this, some of it obviously doesn't, but yeah, maybe it's going to... I think that Malcolm Turnbull has actually taken it to a new level because he's now talking about the 267 people that are the... Um, subject of the High Court case as product and that therefore the refugees are products for the people smuggling market. So they're not even humans anymore, they're products. Yeah, well I guess what I want to start with is, is to deal a little bit with that sort of dehumanising factor that's been coming through the media and been coming through and let, let's have a let's have a bit of a look at the, the story from the refugees point of view. I mean, who are these people? That's one thing we never hear through the media. So um I guess why you're sitting at home, you're in some other country. What happens to make you want to jump up, run out the door with nothing, and start just keep on running till you get to Australia? What what are the what are the factors that makes somebody jump up and 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 go? Um, I guess um, Jane or Toby, you guys have actually met and talked to people. Did you have many conversations about why they'd left their home? Uh, I worked with quite a number of families and the the stories would all vary to why people had left because it was individual you know uh, a lot of people um, come from the Kurdish region of Iraq and Iran and their Kurdish nationals particularly um, Fali Kurds who are just highly persecuted there they're not able to hold down employment they're not able to attend education basically their their life um, prospects are really really poor so I worked with quite a number of with Kurdish people, um, also people that had been assaulted in their home country, usually by arms of the governments that they were under. Um, some of them quite quite badly um, assaulted by governments, but a lot of them are ethnic minorities that aren't given the life prospects and the chances that are basic human rights. Yeah, yeah. So what, let's unpack that a little bit. I mean, 
can you guys from the Refugee Action Committee, are there any sort of statistical evidence or reports and stuff that say what the factors are as well that back up the anecdotal things that people are actually saying? <laughs> a lot of the people who seek asylum in Australia are, as um, uh, Jane mentioned, um, uh, uh, Kurds, a lot of Hazaras. So there, there are minorities within a number of countries, Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, 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 Myanmar, who are completely disenfranchised in their own country. They are not regarded as citizens and they are not afforded, accorded any of the citizenship rights. So basic rights that we um, um, uh, we enjoy here, right to work, right to education, right to health care, are denied those people. So um, uh, you have that, that, that condition and then on top of that in places like Syria you have a brutal war where people's homes are being completely destroyed and infrastructure is completely decimated, it's a question of survival. It really comes down to just a question of survival. And anybody in those circumstances is going to seek a, a safe environment. And that's what causes people to flee. And um, uh, that combination of, of, of ongoing systemic persecution at all levels of society um, uh, alongside um, uh, complete destruction of the environment um, is is um, is what causes people to, to flee. Yeah, right. And how bad does the sort of oppression get? I mean, I might want to just put a little warning forward to the to the listener that uh, it can get a bit rough for people. Um, what um, what sort of things happen to people? Say when they're when they're getting repressed by a totalitarian police force. So you take the Hazaras in, in Afghanistan and Pakistan, there are frequent um, uh, massacres of Hazara people in Pakistan and, and um, uh, in, in Afghanistan. People literally flee for their lives as the police are, um, and the militia are coming in through the front door. People are running out the back door to save their life. It doesn't get any, any more um, um, you know, stark than that. Um, if you take the Rohingyas in, in Myanmar, um, uh, these people are forced to live in squalid camps. Um, uh, again, um, uh, they are at the mercy of really brutal gangs. People, and, and not, not that long ago, mass graves were found, thought to be Rohingya um, uh, families, Rohingya refugees. It is, it is a question of life and death. That's, that, you know, it's not, it's not um, uh, about seeking sort of, you know, a greater level of luxury. It is about life and death. Yeah, yeah, and and I think Jane mentioned that people were living in a in a sort of substandard way. But how bad can some of these camps get? What what are the what are the things that are likely to happen to you or your family if you're just living totally on the street in a third world country in some camp or slum? What what would make you want to run away from that? You don't have access to clean water. You don't have access to basic um, um, uh, hygiene. You know infrastructure. You don't um, have access to enough food, so you know people are starving. Um, uh, you, you know, all those those um, really basic elements of living, you don't have access to, mm. and you're and on top of that, you're you're at risk of being picked up um, uh, by the secret police um, uh, at any time, and and um, then subjected to torture. So we've heard recently about the. Um, uh, the terrible tragedy of uh, Fazal Chagani, who died um, in Christmas Island, and the torture that he was sub subjected to in Iran. I mean, unbelievable torture. Um, and that's the sort, you know, um, th that's the sort of, uh, um, and I don't know, with a, like really distressing, really traumatic 
um, uh, torture, and th- that's what people are experiencing. People, and he was a a, um, a Kurd in Iran, and you know very much, um, uh, um, you know, experienced the terrible things that, that Jane's mentioned um, in the you know the families that she's um, had contact with. So yeah, well, they're all pretty serious things. It would make me run away too. Um, and what what are the common sort of? Oh, well, actually, before we go into that, a natural disasters a, a thing yet at the. Because I know they're going to become a push factor with climate change making the weather more extreme. Are we seeing much of that yet? Anyone? Um, the um, the, the um, debates on that have um, exposed that a lot of that is a sort of scare myth in a way, that at the moment that um, climate refugees are not um, beating on our doors in Australia, that that's sort of been a, a bit of a beat-up, that, that most people who are forced to... Um, to leave their lands for higher lands or for more safe lands, actually try and find solutions internally in country. Yeah, right. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? You don't want to mm. go too far from mm. home, really, do you? And what are the... Well, I guess that sort of leaves you... Oh. I was just going to say that... Sorry, Jane. Um, from what I know of the numbers, that um, when the refugee status determination process takes place for the people on um, Manus, Nauru and, and within Australia that it's something like over 85% of them are found to be genuine refugees fleeing persecution. So it's really high numbers that are actually not fleeing climate but actually fleeing genuine persecution. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good and bad, I suppose. Um, um, yeah, leaving it down with, with conflicts and repression. So what, what are the common causes of that? Are there anything that sort of keeps cropping up again, which is sort of the, the, the kernel or the seed of these these wars and, and repression? Anything strike you as a commonality? Look, I think to some extent you have to go back in history and see, you know, um, uh, the impact of, of colonialism and the carve-up of the Middle East after the First World War and the arbitrary lines that were drawn and the, the politics of, of, of pitting one group against another. And we, we continue to see the repercussions of that. I think it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's got to be seen in its historical context. Yeah, right. So, Meg, you mentioned before that um, most of the climate refugees stay fairly close to home. How about, um, how about people who flee the, uh, the conflict and repression? How far do they normally get? Well, um, when we fear a number of refugees in our country, we need to take a look at how many refugees are in border countries from places like Syria, where the uh, number of refugees is kind of like something like um, half the population in some countries. Uh, so they mostly go to the border countries around them, which have, and have a huge economic impact on those countries. Um, and and only really flee further when life becomes unbearable, unbearable in those second countries. And interviews with people walking across Europe to find a safe haven, almost invariably they say, particularly the Syrians, one day we want to go back to our country. So they're not fleeing because they don't want to live in their country um, and they're not wanting to be Europeans, they're just wanting safety. And they really want to go back to their country. Um, there's a really high numbers, it's quite extraordinary. Toby, did you hear any stories on, on your experiences on um, on Nauru about uh, people on the journey when they were when they were fleeing and, and what what it was like on the on the road? I guess uh, I'm probably not going to be commenting anything of the sort of personal stories which I heard on Nauru, just because we are still sort of muzzled by uh, a two year threat of jail if we speak out about um, sort of I guess personal details uh, okay, and yep, conditions yep. there. 
But I can share sort of a little bit of an insight into refugees I worked with previously um, back in New Zealand. Oh, nice one. Um, resettling them. And I, I think it's also important for, for us to understand that although oppression happens within their countries, also the second countries can be a very dangerous place mm. for refugees. Mm. Um, and it's really important because we see these sort of boat turnbacks and we're not sending them back to what we might consider a country that we go and visit to for a trip for a holiday on the beach, it's not safe for, for refugees. So for one of the families I worked with, they spent 20 years um, in a second country, which I would consider safe for myself to travel with. But they were in a camp which they were not allowed out to. They had no working rights, um, unless if they could bribe the guards. And that camp was subject to raids across the border, um, which were not light raids, not people pulled out, put into jail. It was burning of this sort of refugee camp um, and sort of rape of the women. So I think it's also, yeah, it's important to understand that the, the journey that they go through, it's not a safe one. Um, and these second countries, which we often call sort of safe havens or accuse refugees of moving through second countries, which are, are safe, that they, they may be safe for us, but they're not safe for refugees, which have no rights or um, access to basic services. Yeah, and are they usually travelling with their family or solo? Or? It's a real mixture depending on the, the refugee and their, their ability. Some are travelling solo on behalf of a family um, and some are whole, uh, travelling in a whole group. Um, and I guess, yeah, I've, I've seen, seen both. Yeah, yeah right. Well, let, let's, let's sort of explore, I guess, a little bit more on, on what you were just saying there about the, uh, the lack of services. I mean, what, what does it mean to sort of have no legal recognition in a country i mean what does that involve say can you get yourself a driver's license or anything like that i think we probably find it very hard to conceive what it means um because we you know um, certainly i would say i've never experienced that and i would say none of us in this room have experienced mm. that so um we can only try and imagine what what that complete um uh you know, disenfranchisement would, would feel like. And I would say, you know, you can't just rock up and get um, uh, a driver's licence. You wouldn't be able to get any sort of documentation that would enable you to to interact at all with the civil society. Um, you wouldn't be able to send your children to school. You wouldn't be able to access healthcare other than um, what operates essentially on the black market, probably at exorbitant prices. Um, so... All those things that we take for granted, people who, who have no, um, uh, you're denied all those rights and, and denied and are not recognised as legal people in their own right, would have no access to. No, mm, well, uh, go on. Yes, uh, Michelle. Yeah, I was just going to add there, as Sophie said, no one in this room has actually experienced this. And um, we've met refugees who have these stories, but one of the Things that um, the legislation that muzzles um, journalists or muzzles whistleblowers and muzzles journalists and other work, uh, workers and also denies um, journalists access to the camps means that these refugee stories are not getting out there. We're not getting to hear the real stories behind the statistics on the demonization of these refugees. And um, research has shown that it's really important in terms of tr changing the conversation and, you know, and changing public opinion. Um, is actually getting to see the faces and hearing the stories of the refugees. That's why this, um, what's happening at the moment with um, the, the families and especially the babies that have been sent back to Nauru, 
why that's galvanizing public opinion and and mobilizing action is because people can actually see the faces and hear some of the stories um yeah behind um as meg said the products that Ma malcolm turnbull as he refers to them as yes products it's a wonderful turn of phrase isn't it yeah um, um what are the uh what are the second countries um likely to offer in terms of police protection for a, a refugee uh, how are you likely to be treated by the security forces if you're moving across country in, in incognito I guess with no papers certainly um, uh, there I think is quite a, a level of, of fear um, uh, among people fleeing and in second countries about being um, persecuted by the, the um, police in those second countries. Um, uh, uh, the conditions for refugees in places like um, uh, Lebanon, um, apart from you know, um, meeting basic um, uh, living conditions, is fear of getting picked up by the police. Um, so, as Toby said, these places aren't, necess you know, aren't um, uh, uh, necessarily safe places for people seeking asylum. Um, uh, and they are they are um, um, harassed by police. I think in even in Indonesia and Malaysia they're harassed by police. Mm. Um, uh, so again, you know, um, uh, as Toby said, pushing boats back to Indonesia um, uh, under this sort of pretense that that um, uh, people are, are, are in Indonesia, refugees and asylum seekers in Indonesia somehow um, are able to to you know have a comfortable existence is just a, a complete you know. Um, doesn't doesn't stand up to scrutiny. And I think it goes back to not being recognised. So if these the refugees aren't recognised by the police force as legitimate sort of uh, people within the country, that leaves them very very vulnerable um, to being exploited not only by the police but crime syndicates. And you see that quite a lot with refugees moving through second countries is that because of their vulnerability um, and they don't have any sort of official status, it leaves them very open to being yeah, taken advantage of by sort of third parties. Um, we heard a horrific story um, related to that, which was the um, young children in um, second country making unsafe life jackets for the people, um, so that people fleeing on boats had life jackets that would make them sink. Not fleeing, and the the people working in the factories were young children, refugees fleeing themselves. So that's just a horrific story. Yeah, I was just wondering yesterday where all those life jackets come from. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, what, what's the influence of, of sort of chance or choice on, on someone who's in this sort of maelstrom of, of fleeing and running away from things and all these conflicting fears? What, what makes sort of someone who is an asylum seeker choose where to go and they sort of have a little encyclopedia of destination countries and oh maybe australia might be good maybe canada i think as an australian passport holder you don't realize how restricted people from other countries travel actually is so say you're from a middle eastern country there's actually very few countries you can enter into without a lot of prior planning and visa applications which is not going to happen if you're already at odds with the government of your country. And so that's why we end up with a lot of um, Middle Eastern asylum seekers traveling through Indonesia and Malaysia, because that's one of the few places where they can actually enter without a lot of prior planning, which when you're fleeing your government, 
or you're fleeing war or terror is actually the way that you move. And so you end up in those countries just because that's where you can actually get to. And then the choices from there are where you can apply to from within those countries or in a lot of cases, the next country that you can get to, which is actually likely or hopefully would offer you a safe haven being Australia or New Zealand. And, and then that does put you on that boat journey. The, the information that you have to make that choice, if you get the choice, um, wh- where does that come from? Is that usually sort of through the media or do the people smugglers sort of act as an authority? Or Yes, I'd say word of mouth and people smugglers are probably pretty high up there. But we also do hear that um, people sitting in um, transit camps in other countries do listen to the news um, and are looking around, and but, but certainly they are also told a lot of um, lies and um, deception from people smugglers. Um, if there were queues there, if there were actually regional centres where um, people were being um, interviewed and processed, um, they, they might make different choices. They might have different information and make different choices. It's also going to depend on the um, a couple of factors for each individual family or individual person in terms of if you're from a highly persecuted minority, your education level is not going to be as high. Therefore, your understanding of legal processes and legal procedures is not going to be as solid as someone else who maybe was educated and wealthy in their home country but persecuted for other reasons who may be able to access those channels more easily. So it really depends on the level of education, understanding and wealth of each of the refugee families. And, And I think that's a really important thing to remember is that not all refugees are poor. Um, mm. It's it's not an economic thing. It's like, it is about persecution, and so different refugees and asylum seekers are going to have different access depending on what their life was like in their home countries. Yeah, that makes sense. Family and friends do they sort of play a, a role as well in, in where you might go? Sort of if you've got family, say in Norway. We, we know that some of the people on boats and now in Manus and Nauru have family in Australia and that was part of their motivation. So I would imagine that does have something to do with it. Yeah, and how about, um, I guess, getting back to the uh, the old colonial ties? Are there, are there sort of patterns of, of refugee flow that follow back to the sort of old colonial countries, so UK or France? I don't know whether those links, you know, certainly... Um, uh, they're much weaker if they still exist. Um, I think you know we can see in Europe that really there's not there's not that relationship, that colonial relationship that still exists that um, uh, um, is dictating where people fleeing the Syria and the refugee camps around Syria are, are, des- are aiming to get to in Europe. I think they're going where they feel that there will be an opportunity um, for for. Um, you know, some stability um, and to re- and, you know, rebuild a life. So I don't think there's that um, uh, that relationship that still exists between the former colonial power and their previous uh, colonies. Yeah, right. Yep, yep. So I guess as, as you were saying, Jane, the, um, the people who are in transit may or may not know very much about um, how processing anything works. Is, is there much known about what refugees get this sort of word on the road about what Australia's processing procedures actually are and is that sort of accurate? There's not a lot that 
I've heard about that, but I can only assume by the number of people that are still willing to get on boats that the people operating those um, rackets are really good salespeople and that they're able to sell beyond any kind of um, policy promotion from Australia that they they are able to actually kind of convince people to part with money and to take that dangerous journey despite the policy position of Australia currently. But I think it's also a question of, you know, um, you, if you're living in a situation where there is no prospect of you being able to, to rebuild your life or your life of your children, you're seeing your children, you know, um, uh, suffer as a result of that, what risk are you willing to take to, to, to give your children and your, um, you know, um, uh, the opportunity to rebuild? And I think people take risk because, you know, um, as, you know, um, languishing for years and years and years and years. And if you're in, in Indonesia, as a as a science, it is years and years and years. I think um, uh, I, I don't know the, the current numbers, but Australia takes a tiny number of, of asylum seekers who are waiting in Indonesia for, for uh, hoping to be resettled. So people are left with little choice but to weigh up those relative risks. Yeah, yeah, and I guess uh, does your does your assessment of risk sort of get flavoured by your experience, say in your home country? It sure might, it does, uh, yeah. Australia's detention camps might not look so bad. And I think there continues to be a disbelief and a disbelief by people in Australia that surely, you know, thing, you know how long can the government continue to treat people in Australia um, uh, and in its offshore detention centres with that level of brutality? Surely something's going to change. So I think people have hope. People, mm. you know, they, they weigh up the risks and they temper or they pepper that with hope that... Yeah. Surely a country like Australia, a wealthy country that, that, that prides itself on its commitment to human rights, surely um, uh, at some point it has to bring in a policy that is, you know, um, that treats people fairly and with humanity. The corollary of that is, of course, that if in fact Australia did agree to take um, refugees from transit countries like Indonesia and Australia, um, um, a group called People Like Us in Sydney have done research which, um, with them, the refugee community that they are linked with. And one of the questions they asked them is, how long would you be willing to stay in a transit camp if, you, if there was a queue and you, you knew you, uh, you, there was a processing? And they said, they said three years. So, you know, I think that um, in some ways the people smuggling business is in business because we don't give any option. And if we actually, the best way of putting people smugglers out of option is providing that cue so people can somehow wait it out and have some hope that there is a more legal way of coming, not a legal way, but a safer way of coming. Yeah. So I think that's a really important point is who's who's actually putting the people smugglers in business? Is it the lack, and I I would argue it's the lack of cues that does that, the lack of regional processing um, that gives people any hope they can come safely. Yeah, well, we heard before of people waiting for twenty years. How common? Yeah. How common is that as a yeah. as a story that you come across when you're talking to refugees? Is that like the norm, or is that only a few people who've been hanging around for twenty years? Um, I, I wouldn't have any um, sort of like stats on that. Um, I can only go off sort of the the family that I worked mm-hmm. with, but I can give an example to the sort of extended family. Um, so after twenty years, he was re resettled in um, New Zealand with his family, and 
just to put perspective on this, his children, you know, the eldest at the time was 17. All she knew was a refugee camp. That means no education, no formal work. Um, so by having these huge extended periods of time, even just three years, that's a, a very long time to have a group of people out of education, mm. out of um, the not having the ability to access um, services which we take for granted every day and we're sort of creating a self-perpetuating sort of problem because these people don't get the education and um, find it harder to transition even if they get the opportunity into that second country to, to integrate in. Um, but to, to go back sort of time frames, um, he arrived, uh, you know, after his uh, a relative at that same camp and that that relative had to wait another three years, so 23 years before they got an opportunity to move on. Now, um, this family didn't have the means to move on, um, so that's why it took so long for, for them to sort of build up the funds to, to do that um, and to, to, to get those sort of formal applications through. It wasn't an easy thing because they didn't come from a, a well-educated background. Um, they just fled their country with, with nothing. Um, so I think it's yeah really important to understand sort of the, the time frames are quite large, but even when you put it drop it back down to three years, it's an incredibly long time to be waiting with with nothing. Yeah. When you look at a refugee camp in Kenya, like the Dadaab refugee camp, they've now looking at having um, second and third generations of children being born in that camp. So you've got the original first generation of families who have fled and have. Um, set themselves up in this refugee camp and then they've had children and their children are now having children so there's you know three generations of instability and three generations of, of living in the refugee camp conditions without as Toby was saying quality education and without those opportunities that should exist for all of us. When you're out there sitting in a, a, a refugee camp making your choice for a destination country I mean would there be attractions to people from things like the the principles that we espouse for ourselves, like freedom, democracy, and human rights, the rule of law, that sort of thing? I think we need to put it in context that of the, and I think the the uh, UNHCR has estimated that there are twenty million plus people currently displaced. Um, six million of those, I think, if I've got the, the figures right, are displaced outside of their country and and the remainder are displaced within their own country. A tiny fraction of those people get resettled. It is, it is I don't know, 1%, less than 1%. Not, yes, point, not, yeah, not, yeah, yeah. yeah, actually get resettled in, in countries like Australia, Canada, um, um, that actually have a resettlement program and very few countries actually have a formal resettlement program which is why Australia can say it's generous in resettling because it is one of only a small handful of countries that actually have a resettlement program. So I think for most people who've been forced to flee and are um, um, uh, in refugee camps they're not they're just wanting in the first instance safety, um, uh, some security not to live without that constant fear rather than necessarily um, you know, looking at a checklist of you know, um, principles of democracy and, and, and you know, in, in possible countries. I think those options aren't really open to people in that way. Um, I think in the first instance, they're, they're being driven by this, this desperation for some level of safety and security. And are there any other sort of destination countries in, in our region, in the whole of sort of 
Southeast Asia and Oceania? Well, there's New Zealand, and as we know um, what came out recently, that New Zealand had offered. Um, uh, I think the arrangement that was proposed um, uh, when Julia Gillard was Prime Minister uh, was that um, uh, New Zealand was willing to take 150 per, per annum, per yeah. annum um, from, of a number of people from Manus and Nauru. Um, uh, so this was part of the solution that New Zealand was offering, and Australia has rejected that, that offer. So, um, uh, again, it would seem that Australia isn't pursuing or looking for any solutions here other than um, uh, imprisoning and continuing to imprison people who dare to come by boats seeking our protection or pushing, pushing boats back. Right. So New Zealand is the only other country who's willing to host refugees in the whole region. So what are the, what are the options for refugees who are stuck in camps in Indonesia and Malaysia? to go back up to the Northern Hemisphere or halfway around the world. Is that like a, a feasible option? Well, not, not really. I think we find um, uh, that those thousands of people stay in Indonesia. So I think in what uh, Malaysia, there's like 90,000 odd refugees, many of whom are, are f um, fleeing the, the military regime in Myanmar. Uh, there are uh, refugees in Thailand. Um, I'm not aware that many of the countries that you know, um, many of the countries in Southeast Asia are signatories to the mm. the uh, refugee convention. Mm. So there's no obligation in terms of, of um, uh, you know that that legal framework, that international framework, to um, resettle these people. So they are they 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 work um, on the quiet, um, uh, um, you know, and and they're subjected to all those those. Um, uh, you know, vulnerabilities as a result of that. I think going back to or, or trying to travel again um, is probably not an option for most people. Mm. On, on the travel, I think um, having travelled through Singapore and Malaysia and Indonesia extensively, nowadays you actually need to have, particularly coming from particular passport holders, uh, need to have a visa in their passport before they can even actually get on a plane in those countries. So you know, while they can can leave their, their home countries and end up in a, a friendly country, actually leaving that country via any means other than boat is near on impossible. So then they're sort of just held in the country um, while they work out their next steps, which is either going to be applications to consulates and high commissions individually to each um, country or finding another means to to move forward with their lives. So you mentioned the uh, the, the convention. What what's, what's the convention that we're referring to here? This is the United Nations refugee document, is it? Yeah, so this was a, um, a convention that was entered into in 1951 and it was very much um, uh, um, driven as a result of the huge displacement that occurred during the Second World War. So um, uh, in 1951, um, and it's, it's called the UN Refugee Convention, uh, and it specifically referred to, to people displaced as a result of the Second World War. Um, uh, it then became apparent that there was going to be continuing displacement because of conflict, post-World War II conflict. So in 1967, there was a protocol added to that convention which, which broadened its, its um, uh, um, application um, beyond people um, who were just displaced as a result of the war. And that is the, but the but, and Australia is a signatory both to the 1951 Refugee Convention and to the 1967 Protocol. 
Right, so if you've signed and ratified this convention, what are the implications for your country? <laughs> Given that we have written any reference to this convention out of the Migration Act, um, oh. And given um, the de recent decision of the High Court, I think we can come to the conclusion that we've decided we can ignore our obligations under that convention, which is utterly shameful or odious. Yeah, so what, what are the obligations we're ignoring? <laughs> we are we're ignoring the obligation to um, assess people who come to our shores um, for their claims for refugee status. Um, and to then make appropriate accommodation for if they are turn out to be genuine refugees to um, to provide safe safe haven and eventually settlement somewhere whether it's Australia or somewhere else but it's our responsibility to do that under the convention. Yeah, all right. Well, let's let's move back to uh, to queue jumpers. Um, the non-existent queue. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, what are they talking about? What's the actual process in, in second, third, fourth countries, in countries of transition? How does a refugee go about getting on the, the, the list that sort of, I guess, is there, a waiting list for people to be moved to um, countries who are signatories to the convention? So the first thing that a, an asylum seeker needs to do is actually um, register with the UNHCR, so the UN. United Nations Human Rights Commission that they're applying for a refugee status um, and often in some countries the UNHCR will actually give them some kind of determination so they'll actually can end up with a refugee ID that says that they're definitely a refugee and then um, my understanding having not done the process myself is that it's up to refugees to individually apply to each consulate or each high commission of a country that does resettle and, and to go through that application process at each of the countries where they could be resettled. So it's a very paperwork heavy process for people who may not have all of their documents, may not have identifying means for themselves to go through and probably also acknowledging that it would be being done in a second or third language um, and I know filling out forms in English can be difficult enough for people let alone if you know we were being required to fill out fo forms in in French or in Spanish imagine trying to go through that process amidst what was being spoken about before where the, there's the fear and the persecution because you're in a country but not necessarily recognized legally in that country and the, and the ramifications of that for you so it's it's really um administrative heavy process while there's so many pressures on you and that's not even looking at the how do you actually feed your family every day if you don't have work rights and you don't have an income coming in so there's so many pressures on top of that administratively heavy process yeah right so i guess that that little card you were talking about the refugee card that's sort of the difference between being an asylum seeker and being a refugee is it mm. So the, I guess there's the there, there's the, the definition line of you know an asylum seeker is someone who is um, seeking um, refugee status or seeking to be recognised as a refugee, and then a refugee is someone who's actually been recognised that they are fleeing persecution and they meet the UNHCR standards of refugee. Yeah. So how long? Oh, well, we've covered this. How long it can take up to twenty years? I guess that's. Is, is there like a class divide? Because you were saying before, Toby, that um, say if you don't have any money and you've got no means to work and you're living in a camp and in a country where you don't know the language and there's no work rights, 
how, um, yeah, can other people say if you have education and contacts and, and money, would you be able to move yourself along a bit quicker? Anyone? Uh, possibly because you've got more access to um, sort of services if you've got more more money. But it's also, I think it comes back to what we hear a lot back in Australia of sort of illegals. Why didn't they go sort of come to our country through a, a legal sort of means through visas? But if you actually look into it, it's, it's not that easy to get visas, whether or not you have money um, from countries that are, you know, stricken with war or high prosecution, you're often really restricted in what visas and what countries you can actually have access to. And it's something we really don't appreciate when we've got an Australian passport, which gives us a free ticket pretty much into any country in the world. Um, so I guess it's a hard concept for, for us to grasp sort of the difficulty these people sort of go through. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, now, Jane and Toby, I guess uh, you guys need to move on fairly soon, is that right? Yep. Um, so I guess we'll, we'll skip a bunch of this blabbing for now. Um, was I mean, so you guys worked for Save the Children. What, what was your role there? I worked as a um, child protection caseworker, a child protection focal point, and a child protection policy trainer. So I had a number of roles on the island. I worked with the, the children and I worked in the recreation department, so I was sort of down in the family camp each day, yep. Mm. And what, what was your experiences that you're willing to sort of talk about? Are they, I mean, how's Australia treating people there? Obviously, you've, you've, you've broken this silence, but we'll, we'll go through all that later. But um, I've written about and spoken about some of the systemic stuff that I saw that was um, kind of oppressing and um, de-dignifying people um, in terms of just the, the quality of food that was provided to asylum seekers in the camp being so different to the, the quality that was provided to the staff. Um, which to me is, it's not a matter of access. That's actually a, a conscious choice in, in what's prepared and what's shared. Um, so that to me was um, probably one of the biggest shocks because I was prepared for a lot of the other things. Um, but also the as a child protection worker, the lack of forethought and system and process for dealing with some of the child protection issues that were coming up, particularly as we saw single parents' mental health deteriorating and, and single parents with young children who were articulating to their caseworkers that I'm not going to be able to continue to care for my children. My mental health is not well enough for me to continue to care for my children properly. And, and this was something that had been raised over a number of months leading up to parents actually relinquishing care of their children because they knew that it wasn't in their children's best interest and they weren't able to to managing the day-to-day -day parenting tasks of looking after their children. And just the, the absolute lack of preparation for that eventuality, even though it had been forewarned so frequently. And I think the, the final thing which I find really hard to comprehend from a country where we have so many regulations about mandatory reporting and and are so clear and such leaders in how to manage child sexual abuse, 
that the systems for that just were not in place and that in fact some of the actions that were undertaken place children back in a in a place of emotional and psychological harm where you had a young girl in under 36 hours of disclosing to police in Nauru that she'd been inappropriately touched by an adult male in the camp that then she was placed in close proximity with her family with that male and his family um, in a in a closed in compound and that's where they were placed overnight prior to her being flown out and in response to that as as people raising concern about that we were told oh but he can't have touched her so the absolute lack of knowledge and understanding about the impacts of child sexual assault and the re-traumatising of children who had disclosed and acknowledged and named perpetrators? Uh, well, I think the biggest sort of thing that stuck out for me was the environment that these young families and families were sort of put in. And um, I, I just found it really... I struggled to come to terms how... Uh, a country like Australia um, can be putting these people in such bad conditions for such an extended period of time. It was, if it was a first response, um, it could be justified for a, you know a couple of months. But these centres have been open for an extended period of time, and in my time, I saw no like meaningful action towards improving the conditions for these people. And I, I've said this before because I've spoken out before. But one of the things that sort of shocked me of this sort of the environment that these young kids were growing up in was my first day of work and I walked down into the, the centre which is completely carpeted in sort of um, small rocks um, so there's actually no grass, no greenery inside this camp and a small girl tripped in front of me and um, grazed her knee and as I bent down to comfort her I asked her, oh, my name's Toby, um, what's your name? And she answered me with her boat ID, UBA 138. Mm. And this just shocked me. Um, that this child had their first response to me as a worker within that camp was not to give me her name but to give me her boat ID and this was just because every service provider bar save the children refers to refugees by their boat ID and this is really dehumanizing um, and also I think leads to a, an issue where even for the workers they're not really treating these people as human if they're referring to them by numbers. It's taking that human factor away. Um, but to, to give some people back here some examples of the, the living conditions, the tent that these families are forced to live in for, you know, up to years is, you know, a small marquee tent um, and in Nauru the temperatures sort of get up to sort of 35 degrees um, each day plus humidity so that the temperatures inside these tents are absolutely baking. So another thing you'd see is the adults would chase shade sort of around the camp because it was just literally too hot to stay inside their accommodation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know you've got to go. Is there anything else either of you would like to add before you have to take off? Uh, I'd just like to add it's sort of... Uh, pretty extreme step to take if you think about it when we hear the rhetoric of uh reddit rhetoric yeah <laughs> back in australia pardon me um of sort of we're doing a humanitarian response by turning back the boats and saving lives that is true and it is a terrible thing to to lose lives at sea um 
but it's an extreme chance to take to put people in such bad conditions. You're punishing a group of people um, to show another group of people not to come. Um, that's, you know, when you put it in that way, you're punishing children to stop other children coming. It's an extreme thing to take, and that's not humanitarian. That's not a humanitarian response. Extreme humanitarianism. <laughs> All right, we're going to listen to Formidable Vegetable Sound System and get together and we'll be back to talk more about this after the song. Thanks, Jane, and thanks, Toby, for joining us. Um, good on you. Thanks for well having us. Well done for your, uh, for your stand. Thank you. You're on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. You're on Behind the Lines. You're listening to Scotty. And we are joined still in the studio by Meg Clark from the Refugee Action Committee, Sophie Singh from SAME, and Michelle Dunbreen, who's from the Refugee Action Committee and works at the University of Canberra Media Research Centre. Now, we, we finished that last little section there on the, uh, on the conditions in the camp, sort of almost being deliberately punishing. Is that the case? What, what's, the government's, what's the government trying to do by being so full-on and such extreme humanitarianism, as Toby coined there. What are they trying to do? To, to seek our protection. That is, at the end of the day, what, what they are trying to do. But in addition to that, there's also a domestic political dimension to this, which probably is um, uh, the, the primary driver um, for these policies. Um, uh, and I think we saw before the um, before the the election, which brought um, Kevin Rudd um, to the prime ministership, uh, at, um, uh, there was reported um, um, a comment from from within the Liberal Party that they hoped the boats continue to come because you know it be it, it, it continued to be what they saw as um, um, a a, um, a source of electoral strength for them. So I think that the the domestic politics here can't be underestimated. The fact that it's a bipartisan policy perhaps takes the the um, 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 the driver for both to continue to try and outbid each other in their cruelty, which is what we saw in the lead up to the to the um, uh, Abbott Rudd election in all its obscenity. Um, as each party sought to outbid how cruel they could be to, to refugees and asylum seekers. Um, really, we've got a Me Too attitude now um, between Labor and Liberal, where really they're not looking to differentiate, um, and certainly they're not looking to differentiate on the basis of treating, you know, putting in place something that's more positive as a, as a policy. Um, we're told that the policies are in place to deter people from coming because the government wants to prevent people drowning at seas. That's what we're, that is what we're told. Persecution continues to happen. People continue to flee. So really what is happening, apart from the boats that have been turned back, which we don't hear about because of the level of secrecy that surrounds um, this policy, but um, it's forcing people into other avenues to flee, often much more dangerous avenues to flee. So you, people continue to flee just because Australia has this policy of, of um, turning the boat back, boats back and incarcerating people doesn't mean that people don't flee persecution that they're facing in their home countries. They continue to flee. But um, uh, it's not in our visibility. And I think um, at the end of the day, um, we don't know that people aren't drowning. 
We don't know. There's no positive evidence to prove that people aren't drowning. People are certainly drowning as they um, uh, um, try and reach Europe. Hundreds of people are drowning, but they're not drowning uh, in in the visibility of the Australian um, um, public. And I think that's that's where um, uh, the government's seeking to 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 you know strike the chord. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the whole deterrence thing, that the idea of of deterrence is to to publicise how bad it's going to be here and what the journey's going to be like to the people who are going to come. D- does that message get through? We heard a little bit about that before. Is it getting through to the people who are our, our market? Well, we know that um, 23 boats were turned back um, in the period of this government, so we certainly know boats, people are still desperate enough, even though... The, most of them probably get that message, as we discussed earlier, they probably get other messages from people smugglers and they're desperate. But I wanted to talk about the other reason for the um, brutality and the d- deliberate brutality and is that um, I think it's called a, a position where you never know, the fear is constant, you never know when you're going to be denied something that's vital to you or punished for something very trivial or something like that. One of the reasons for that, I believe, is that one of the things that they are trying to stop um, people in the um, detention camps from doing is contacting the public in Australia, whether through their lawyers or human rights groups or anything, and speaking out and and personalising and humanising their stories and their conditions. And Baruts Bachani on Manus Island talks about this. He's a human rights campaigner who's um, he's, he's locked away on Manus, wasting his time in fantastic writer and and, um, speaker on human rights and he talks about that every time he manages to get any message through or write anything or anybody else does they are basically taken away in manacles to um, an isolated room and punished so um, the taking away of the freedom of speech the freedom to express your opinion the freedom to tell your stories is part of the of the deliberate strategy of not allowing those stories to be told because these people can never be seen as human beings and in fact as you know fantastic interesting talented worthwhile um social justice oriented human beings who could add to our society yes ah oh, dear um so <laughs> just a bit of a hypothetical how far do you reckon the australian government could go in deterrence do you reckon they ever could go far enough to be worse than the home country well, we're constantly surprised, aren't we, at what they do? We always, there's, you know, we're constantly saying, you know, you don't, we couldn't think it could get any worse, and then it does. Did you see the Christmas message from the men at Manus, where they talked to the government about how they could save a lot of money by killing them? Mm. They talked about maybe setting up gas chambers or drowning them at sea because nothing could be worse than being killed slowly, like they are being killed. And they talk about how in their country it's brutal and they're killed quickly. But here in Australia, you are killed slowly. On Nauru, the children there have set up a Facebook page and they've spoken openly about committing suicide. They're using this language, young children. You know, they think it'd be better to be dead than to be on uh, Nauru. Yeah, right. So this is a different sort of form of brutality. The, uh, is, it, is it the waiting or the... It's the system. It's the, I mean, it's the waiting. It's not, they're not actually waiting for anything because this is indefinite. So even if you get a refugee determination in PNG, your determination, they are asked to submit their refugee determination, not to the Australian government, but to the PNG government. 
they didn't arrive in PNG. They were taken there by force. Mm. And they are now being forced to submit their refugee application to PNG. If they get a positive outcome, they are released into a transit camp in Lorengo. All that means is that they're in another prison in Manus that has no security, <laughs> no future, um, no looking forward to any end product, no, um, they're too unsafe for them to work, um, and they're stuck in an even more unsafe, precarious situation. They're waiting for nothing. Nothing is planned for them. So the only people, the men in, inside the camp are waiting, and all they're waiting for is to get out into this limbo in Longaroo Transit Camp. And the same happens to the people in Nauru. Once they are processed, they are then sent out into the community where they're living in isolated, um, poor, shocking accommodation outside communities, sort of out in the middle of nowhere, where they've got to walk long distances to get food and they are subjected to harassment and even rape on the road on the way to get the food, um, where people come and harass them and there is no protection. So they're in a worse situation in many ways because they have no, not the security of the camp. So they're waiting and they're waiting for nothing. There's nothing that's their life from there on. So when mm. you talk about waiting, it's waiting for nothing. So obviously the, the policy there is sort of a sub-policy is that of crushing hope of those within the camp. And and the, the, the larger policy, I guess, is of deterring other arrivals from coming in the first place. These people are pawns. Even though we are practically the only place in the whole region that these people have that offers any sort of chance of getting out of grinding poverty and repression and... and watching your kids die of diseases from the, the open sewer next door. Hmm, well, that seems like a, a, a use workable idea, doesn't it? And um, we hear that that punishment, even for uh, 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 refugees who have resettled in Australia, um, uh, who originally arrived uh, by boat, that that punishment continues to occur. So we, we are aware that um, uh, people who are who have met all the requirements to apply and uh, for citizenship, they have they have um, permanent residency for the required period. They have met all the conditions that um, are stipulated to be eligible for citizenship, and they th those 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 um, applications are not being processed. And um, there's no legal basis for if, for treating them differently. They have met the criteria, so it must be that. Um, quite junior officers who make these determinations in the Department of Immigration and Border Protection um, are being given an unlawful directive to treat these people differently. There's no legal basis for that unequal treatment. It's an unlawful directive. Yeah. And, and on top of that as well, public servants have been told to refer to people arriving by boat as illegals, which is actually factually incorrect. So I'd argue that the government isn't just brutalising the refugees and asylum seekers, they're also brutalising the Australian people, making them believe lies and making public servants uh, be complicit in this. Yeah, well, because we're running out of time, we'll move on to the media now and the, and the spin that's sort of been put forward. Because, uh, I mean, how do we accept this? I mean, these guys are still getting voted in, even they're, they're doing absolutely insane things just to deter some people asking for help. How, do, how is it justified to the Australian people? I think... Or is it? I think for most people, this is not a vote changer. It's not, and it's recognised as not, a, I think, what they call a, a first order issue. So most people aren't voting on 
the basis of the refugee policy of either party. Um, most people are voting on issues that are much more direct, you know, people um, directly experience healthcare, education, um, job security. Um, given that both parties are bipartisan in their, in their um, uh, refugee policy, um, this is really, you know, it, it, it plays, um, um, you know, it, it has an advantage, you know, at, at one level of wedge politics, but it doesn't determine, um, uh, usually doesn't determine um, election outcomes with possibly the, the exception of the Tampa election in 2001. Um, interestingly, when you go back and have a look at the, um, uh, you know, over the last 15 years, uh, um, the Labor Party has, when it's, it's sought to outdo the Liberals on how how cruel it can be in its refugee policy. It hasn't won the elections on that basis. In fact, it's it's been it's lo it's lost those elections. So it's not actually a vote winner for uh, the Labor Party. And you know we we're certainly of the view that it's shameful that the Federal Labor Party um, uh, doesn't you know don't take a um, a stand um, uh, you know for human rights and 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 um, a, 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 a you know a, a policy of dignity. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Michelle, you you. You watch the media. Um, what's the sort of relationship between the media companies and, and the media owners who, who give us all our story, all our all our news, all our context in the commercial media, and, and even the ABC as well? I mean, what's their relationship to the to the political system and these guys who are uh, giving us this story of we must punish, we must be really hard on these people? Well, you'll see in relation to the ABC, for example that the government punishes the ABC as well for speaking out. The ABC has run several um, exposés on the um, uh, our system. You know, the refugees that are said that they had their hands burnt on the Navy boat. Well, that's been corroborated by other media outlets, but the ABC was ridden really hard by that on that. The ABC, you can see they, um, yeah, they, they this, this government um, and previous governments have criticised the ABC for bias, but successive. Um, independent reports have shown that they're not biased in a lot of their coverage, you know, on the refugees issue and elsewhere. There have been, like an example this week was um, the story about the five-year-old asylum seeker who, or a refugee who was raped on Nauru and has been threatened with return on Nauru. Well, it's emerged that, hey, he's not five, he could be ten, right? So the ABC was, was then um, roundly... Oh, that's much better. Yeah, de like vociferously criticised for, you know, um, spinning a false tale when actually there was just a minor fact that was wrong in this story. Um, so there are, the media, you know, there are obviously variations within the media in terms of um, how they uh, choose to cover this issue. But we also must understand that there are a lot of restrictions on the media in terms of what they can cover. They don't get access to refugees, they don't get access to um, their voices. Uh, their stories. There are, um, you know, advocates in inverted commas are, um, are what's the word, vilified by um, the government. You see Peter Dutton saying that advocates tell lies, um, but actually advocates have access to refugees within the camps and through them the media does get to hear some stories and there are some great um, examples of the media. Um, the Age has been doing a great job, the Guardian's been doing a great job, the ABC's been doing a great job. There are um, individual journalists and other um, media outlets who are trying to get to the truth of this story. Um, you know, even Chris Kenny, like he's uh, he's often you know criticised, and I won't go into why exactly, but he got access to Nauru, and 
there were critici criticisms about how he dealt with Abyan, the, the asylum seeker who was trying to get here to um, have a termination. But what was kind of lost in that was that Chris Kenny corroborated her story. He showed that Peter Dutton had lied on this case, that Abyan had not changed her mind, you know, that she had been just whisked away from, um, from Australia back to Nauru. So um, there are a lot of restrictions on what the media can report. Um, there are restrictions on their access to refugees. Um, re research shows that Australian journalists, when asked, will say that they want to be uh, act as the fourth estate, the break and check on government. Um, whether they actually do that in practice, of course, in individual cases, is you know, um, you know, an open question. But um, yeah, so the government basically controls the information flow, controls the access, and. Um, they're the restrictions they operate under. How do the politicians sort of use a crisis in the media? Because the, the refugee issue is full of crisis after crisis after crisis. How, how is the political, what's the political function of a crisis through the media? Hard to say. Well, I'd have to have a, more of a think about that. But one thing that shows, like you said, it's crisis after crisis after crisis, shows that the, um, well, the policy is, how would you say, not just unstable, but it's, it's a mess. You know, why is there crisis after crisis after crisis? It's not a workable policy in any way, obviously, from a moral point of view or a financial point of view or a, any kind of point of view, I'm sure. Um, Meg and Sophie can, uh, would say more on this, but um, yeah, crisis after crisis is indicative that it's a mess. We, we saw that with the um, uh, mistruths that were promoted by Morrison um, in the hours after um, Reza Bharati's murder, where he implied that the um, asylum seekers escaped from the camp and all kinds of things. So he instantly got on the front foot, tried to create this as being these monsters that we're protecting Australia from, essentially. It turned out to be anything but the truth, um, in fact, the opposite of the truth. Um, and so that's a really good example, and that happens all the time. So if you can seize on anything like um, Fazal Chagani's suicide as being uh, uh, something deeply unstable and there's these horrible criminals there and, you know, anybody who's on Christmas Island is not to be trusted. So they'll instantly get on the front foot and create a picture which creates monsters out of human beings. Yeah, well, one of the reasons I started doing this show years ago was I was listening to Scam the Manic or Long Jaws or one of those shock jocks from many, many years ago and... And I was doing a forest blockade at the time, and this guy was saying, those bloody ferals out in the bush ought to be shot. So here's this guy telling people to shoot me, personally. Yeah. And he never got in trouble for that. And I thought, well, balance, media balance. Mm. Maybe we do need some balance. These guys are on 24-7 saying crazy things like that. So that's also uh, and another fine. really good instance of dehumanisation. Yeah. Mm. Well, What's the role of dehumanisation in this? Well, they dehumanise advocates as well, like they call us advocates, which is fine. When did that ever become a bad word? Um, but, you know, thousands and thousands of ordinary Australians, whatever an ordinary Australian is, right, um, are campaigning on this issue. Yeah, we're, we're all being vilified by the government um, for speaking out. Even the, dehumanization, head of, yeah. even the head of the department, Pizzuli, was implying that if it hadn't been for advocates, they'd have been able to quietly solve this problem, you know, and, and the it, implication was that we're making things worse for the 267, mm. which is complete rubbish. You know, power is entirely in their hands. Mm. I think uh, 
that um, dehumanisation is a very deliberate strategy and yeah. has been a very deliberate strategy from the um, time that mandatory detention was was um, brought into being in um, what 1992, 90, I 92, think. Yeah. Yeah. Keating and Hawke. Uh, yes, yes, it was. Yeah. Yes. Um, so it was no accident that the the majority of onshore detention centres were in remote parts of Australia. That was that was a very mm. deliberate um, strategy. It's no accident that um, uh, there's a there's an incredible level of secrecy that surrounds the administration of this policy because the last thing that the government wants is that Australians would identify with the refugees, that these are people just like us. They are people with, with hopes for their families. They are people with fears for their families. They are people that want the best for their families. And once, and we see time and time again, that once there is that identification, people start to change their views. So, um, uh, you know, once people actually meet people who have, you know, sought asylum, refugees, and realise that these are people just like us. They have aspirations, hopes, fears, uncertainties, just like we do. Um, uh, and when you get that identification, then you can't um, uh, um, see the persecution of those people in the dispassionate, you know, removed way that the government wants uh, wants us to, to, to see the situation, to see the people. So. And are, there, are there similarities that you see between the way that the media spins the refugee or the politicians and the media spin the, the, the refugee issue to, say, the way that the the Aboriginal issue, because that, there's so many Aboriginal internal refugees within Australia, they're parallels. <laughs> I was thinking about this just this morning, that the original kind of uh, survivors, I suppose, and resistors of spin, lies and secrecy are our first people. That, the, you know, the, the, their silence, their history being silenced, their, the massacres being written out of history, um, you know, their whole story, their knowledge just being written out. Um, so they are the original resistors of spin and secrecy that's now being applied in much more sophisticated ways because of we've we've you know we've come a long way on mass communication and and professional spin doctors since then and that the government is employing millions of people millions of dollars sorry on spin doctors to spin their stories for them. And we have we've seen as well. Um, Aboriginal groups and individuals open support for the refugee um, cause. You know, we had um, Sister Jane Kyo who um, uh, camped out at Parliament House um, from late November up to Christmas. And um, during the night, she got refuge, as she put it, at the um, Aboriginal Tent Embassy. They, um, you know, they supported her in that. And um, on Monday at St John's Church at Reed, there was a Let Them Stay um, event, a sanctuary, calling for sanctuary, and one of the uh, local elders spoke at that um, in her official capacity. So the, yeah, the First Peoples recognise the parallels, as you say, between what the refugees are facing and what they are still facing today. Yeah, so I guess you, you were mentioning before, Sophie, that the, the, the remoteness of the camps, which wasn't good enough to be in the middle of the desert because we could still go and get to them, has been sort of exaggerated and made extreme remoteness by being put in the middle of an island which is in someone else's country. So you've got legal access issues through visas and everything mm. else. So, I mean, that that's another side of secrecy. And what, what yeah, that, what are the other sort of effects of, of the secrecy that you mentioned before? Is there, I mean, we've mentioned just the, the lack of access. I mean, 
I so, guess. Yeah, so it means that independent um, uh, scrutineers or media are unable to, to go in and, and really report um, firsthand the conditions that people are um, are experiencing in Nauru and Manus Island. So I think um, uh, outsourcing, and Australia is the only country in the world that outsources its um, 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 uh, responsibility around asylum seekers and refugees. No other country in the world does that. Um, and it, it serves Australia's purpose, uh, one, because as you said, Scotty, it, it makes those people, the refugees and asylum seekers, even less accessible um, and more invisible. And in the case of Nauru, it's now, I think, originally... Um, it was, I don't know, let's say $100 or whatever to get a visa to go to Nauru. It's now $8,000. And even um, uh, um, once you, you know, you're able to get that money together, there's no guarantee. And in fact, journalists have been and continue to be not to, to be denied visas. So not only does it serve that purpose for the Australian government because it keeps all those stories hidden, it also enables the Australian government to wash its hands of the responsibility when we, you know, the, uh, disaster after disaster comes out of those camps and Australia, the Australian government's position is, well, we have no control of, over what happens in our rural Manus Island. So yeah. it serves that, that, that dual purpose. So I guess another strategy that would achieve those same purposes is, is, is privatisation, essentially, of the centres themselves. Are, are they actually run by the government? No, we've outsourced that to um, Broad Spectrum. Um, and they outsource some of the functions to Wilson Security. <laughs> and we have even to support that process, we have passed uh, a new legislation, the Use of Force Act, which enables them to use incredible force on basically on just on their judgment that it's um, justified. So no internal scrutiny. They don't have to please explain. They can just use incredible force, even dangerous force, to mm. manage the centre. But we've given them carte blanche to be as violent as they like. Crops, it does get worse and worse, doesn't it? It So um, who are these these private companies? I mean, are they... I know in the the States there's a whole lot of private prisons and they're having trouble closing the prisons down because it's running the economy of certain (laughs) states and stuff. Well, you would be aware that Transfield used to be the ones that ran um, our detention centres and what they did was people talk about it's now known as Broad Spectrum. That's not quite right. What happened was that Transfield have have excised a bit of their company out and chubbed it out on its own and renamed it Broad Spectrum because they wanted to wash their hands of this dirty business. And since that time, shareholder value in Broad, and Broad Spectrum has dropped by more than 50%. Um, so it's clear that there is no... Um, economic value in in, a, in abuse in the long term. Mm. Um, and there is now a campaign called No Business in Abuse, which I think is a really fantastic campaign to try and get local councils and universities and anything to not invest or have anything to do with superannuation companies with any of any any company that actually does business in um, privatised detention centres for Australia. Because um, they, they and um, that in fact will uh, reduce their shareholder value even more. So I think that's a really great move. Yeah, right. And has all this sort of militarised the the Department of Immigration? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the black shirts. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what, what what's going Didn't on? They spend. Wasn't it reported recently? They spend more um, more than any other department um, on medals um, uh, yeah. that they will award to their people. So to the. I presume to the border force um, um, part of the department. So yeah, very much. And they, their their uniforms, the border force uniforms, are 
black shirt. Yeah, paramilitary uniform. And a deputy secretary of the department, a female deputy secretary for corporate, actually showed up at Senate estimates in a black shirt uniform. So it goes right to the top. But then yeah. you also get the stories as well of the um, ordinary or the lower ranking mm. public servants who are really um, upset about this. You know, like having to wear uniforms at work, having to prove that they can do, I don't know how many push-ups it is, 10 or 20? You know, people who have desk jobs um, being... So that's part of what we were talking about before, about they're not just brutalising refugees, they're brutalising public servants and the wider Australian population. So how are we going to... How are we going to rehumanise people? How are we going to get around this and actually sort of solve this problem? Because I guess at the root of it, it's... It's, it's that this dehumanisation has worked, it's that the secrecy has worked, that all of these tactics that the government are using to, to I guess, tell the Australian people the story that's being told is that this is justified. Refugees are finding really creative and interesting ways to fight back in spite of their attempts to silence them. And now they've been joined by churches, by premiers. Um, and so I think that things have changed. And now is the time, if ever anybody was sitting back and thinking, oh, I, I'm, on, I'm on board, but what's the point of protesting? Now's the time to get involved. Well, I think that there is a momentum now in Australia to, to change this and well, that something has broken open finally. That's it. Well, you mentioned the premiers. Mm. What's going on with them? Well, the letter from Dan Andrews was, if, you, if anyone's read his letter or, or hasn't read it yet, go and read it. It's a fantastic letter showing why he has taken a stand and... Uh, such so fantastic that the other premiers, I think, felt that they had to follow suit. Yeah. And Andrew Barr has endorsed it. Yvette Berry has um, written a great opinion piece for Fairfax today. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess for people who haven't heard out there, the um, every premier in Australia, except for the Northern Territory, has uh, offered asylum to refugees. So it's really just the federal government holding them up, and a large part of the Anglican Church has promised to. Uh, in, a, in an act of civil disobedience, give asylum seekers sanctuary Many in their churches. Many others have joined yeah. the Anglican Church. Yeah, yeah great, great. Mm. I'm definitely outdated on that one. But yeah, so uh, we've run out of time, I'm afraid. There's, there's so much more to say, but uh, thank you very much. Thanks, uh, Meg Clark, Michelle Dunbreen and Sophie Singh. Thanks, buddy. Good Thanks. on you.